1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you as ever for joining us. I just spoke with Winnie Wong about her recent book, Van Gogh On Demand, China and the Ready-Made. This came out in 2013 with University of Chicago Press. And it's really, really interesting, not only if you are interested in contemporary China, but also if you're interested in Art and contemporary art more broadly, and the kinds of issues, the kinds of larger conceptual categories, and really practical categories that have tended to be associated with the production of images, the production of objects, and the idea of um, and the figure of the contemporary Chinese producer. So, what I mean by that is that the book is really taking on some assumptions um, that readers might have about uh, the culture of copying and forging specifically in modern China within a global capitalist frame and is upending not just how we understand China in this context but also how we understand the practices of creativity of copying of forgery um, of production and practice um, more generally and of you know what it is to be an artist both to perform that and also to identify someone else as As that kind of figure. So, among all of these things, the book is contributing importantly to how how we understand labor, and it's making two important points about the Dauphin context in particular. The first one is that conceptual labor and manual labor, labor with the hands, are at work in all painterly practices, no matter which which ones, no matter who's doing them. And that includes practices that might be associated with copying, right? And the second one is that there's a hierarchy among artists that's inherent in the division between what we might call material labor and immaterial labor. And this hierarchy undermines, it contradicts the basic values of what Wang calls democratic and universal creativity in conceptual art. And so that last point is really specifically geared toward how we understand what conceptual art is, what kind of labor is involved, who gets to practice it, and what and where it is. The book is also challenging notions of Dafun painters specifically. Um, As she puts it in the book, the painters have been understood typically as, as she calls it, especially unfree victims. And this is victims either of a kind of global capitalist system or a totalitarian communist state um, that really... uh, helps us understand or, or makes us understand Duff and painters as being um, just copiers that are incapable of producing original and creative art. The book undoes this assumption. Um, it really looks at the practices of painters as a way to get away from an understanding of them as victims. And it also shows us that notions we might take for granted, originality, creativity the artistic persona are performances, their constructions, and they operate in Dauphin and they also operate elsewhere. So the book is doing a lot of really interesting kinds of work. um, And Winnie, as she was describing her own um, fieldwork and her own practices has some really fascinating things to say about um, how these practices are unfolding on the ground. So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book. It's quite beautiful. The images are really central um, to the work that the book is doing, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks very much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Winnie Wong about her new book, Van Gogh On Demand. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Winnie, and thanks both for writing an amazing book and also a quite beautiful book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward to this.
2: Thank you, Carla. It's really nice to talk to
1: you. Of course. So, Winnie, can you start us off as this kind of traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field and specifically, how did you come to decide to work on art in contemporary China?
2: Um. My main interest in uh, in this project was, first of all, actually in contemporary China and specifically in the city of Shenzhen. Um, it was a place I knew a little bit about from doing my undergraduate thesis on public space in Hong Kong, um, and it was just something that I had. It was a place that I had always just been curious about, and so I had initially planned to do a project on counterfeit handbags, um, in Shenzhen. Yes. And, uh, but by the time I was halfway through graduate school, um, Chinese art, Chinese contemporary art had at that moment just sort of exploded, um, in both academic and museum interest. Um, and so I had sort of done a sort of, i had been interested, you know, I had done my qualifying exams in, um, Chinese art. Um, but really, I had a hard time finding the kind of artists and works that really compelled me to do a you know, really large project. Um, and at the time, uh, Daffin Village was featured on the cover of New York Times. And of course, since it had to do with fakes and forgeries and authenticity, many, many friends sent it to me, the article, and I completely ignored it and thought it was the silliest thing ever. I thought, of course, there's a village in China that makes copies of, you know. And so um I put it aside. And um, what was funny was that I, I was in Beijing and then in Shanghai when the subject of Daphne kept coming up again. And then I went to Shenzhen to, you know, examine counterfeit handbags. And I thought, well, I'd better go see this place. And I ended up um, going with the uh, artist, uh, art historian Gu Yi and also uh, an independent ethnographer of Shenzhen, Marianne O'Donnell. And the three of us went there one day and it was just the most incredible, unbelievable sort of experience we had where every person, just, you know, the first person we encountered, a painter, just said the most amazing things about art. Um, Funny, amazing, absurd, and insightful um, all at once. And um, I think that interview, the first encounter we had at Daphne, basically was what I had in the next six years. Um, every time I went to Daphne, another person, another painter, another boss would just say something incredible that would just completely um, question my questions. Um, and so it became a natural project for me.
1: Wow. And the um, we'll hear a lot more about this, I'm sure, in the hour to come, but the research for the book actually includes uh, the fruit of many of these conversations. And so... You described the fieldwork early in the book that undergirded this study as it included artist interviews, studio visits, participant observation alongside a range of different kinds of people. So local officials, bosses, interpreters, foreign artists, buyers, traders, and you also describe, and we'll get to this later on in uh, in the conversation, the experience of learning how to to be a painter um, in Mm -hmm. this context. So there's Mm -hmm. lots of really cool conversations that you bring us into So the study started out as a doctoral project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that transition for us? Were there any kind of major transformations or changes in the way either you were structuring the project, you were conceptualizing the project, or really any major um, elements of the transition from dissertation to book that stand out for you as particularly
2: notable? Um, yeah, um, it was actually very simple in my case. Um, the dissertation had uh, ended up having a much longer historical scope. Um, because I, it became obvious as soon as I began that the history of Chinese export painting is um, a history of this region, or at least it's it's been in this region for 200 years. And so my dissertation actually began in the 18th century and went right up to 2010. Um, what I decided to do with the book was to separate um, those. The historical project from the contemporary project, not just because um, the contemporary um, project was sort of of a piece and because it involved sort of a method of working with living artists and uh, international artists and adopting a certain kind of ethnographic um, mode, but um, also because The history itself has a huge gap between about 1850 and 1950. And um, in the dissertation, I dealt with that with very, very little sort of a scant bits of guesses and evidence of, say, every decade from 1850 to 1950, what I thought might have happened. But really... um, I would find that a, a really, really difficult task to cover. And so, in essence, what I did with the dissertation was separated into two books, one which is the post period and one which is the second project that I'm working on, which ends in 1850. So um, that was a very sort of simple organizational and methodological um, sort of, Refinement, I guess, I made from the dissertation to the book. Um, And the second main thing I really did with the book was um, initially basically just spend a lot of time working on the tone of the of the writing. Um, I wanted very much to engage with a number of audiences with this project, and I also wanted very much to um, uh, express a certain kind of empathy, but also irony and humor with um, those, the ethnographic material. And so it became um, very much a challenge to write it so that the positions would be, um, I I don't know how to say, understandable. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted very much not to uh, make fun of these uh, painters. On the other hand, I wanted to highlight um, the irony with which they were approaching their own lives.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So we've been talking about um, this village, this area, Daphne, and this is something that really is at the you know the basic um, stratum upon which the built uh, or the book is built. So let's get this straight mm-hmm. right at the beginning for listeners mm-hmm. who, who aren't familiar with this, and this is maybe a way to bring us into um, really the heart and the body of the book itself. Mm-hmm. So the book opens on a two thousand four copying competition. In this village of Dafan, China. So, to get us started, what what is this village, right? I mean, where is Mm -hmm. this? um, What do we need to know, basically, about Dafan as a place to be Mm -hmm. able to then move to understanding copying as a practice and a process in that place?
2: Um, So, what's interesting about Dafan is that it is, in many ways, not unique at all, Um, and in many ways. Um, made to be unique so um, Dauphin Village is actually properly called now a neighborhood committee um, overseen by the Buji Street Level Office which is in Longgang District um, just outside the what was once the uh, special economic zone of Shenzhen um, and so it is a, a place which is very much like Um, all of the villages in Shenzhen, which became the present day city of Shenzhen and which today we call urban villages or urbanized villages. Um, And this is you know, a, a particularly complicated history. Um, but what we need to know is that there were original villagers who um, became landlords, um, who accepted foreign direct um, investment, created a corporation, um, and uh, that many, many migrant workers live and work in what was the former village. Um, we need to also know that there was a lot of um, Hong Kong-based and foreign Access to um, the place, and uh, because of its proximity to Hong Kong, um, but so the the the, um, the position of Dafen is important here because it is just outside the uh, one of the major checkpoints of what we call the second line or the internal boundary um, of the city of Shenzhen. It is a place that was affordable um, for workers. For migrant workers, um, and it was a place that was also accessible to Hong Kong and foreign um, traders. Um, so that's its sort of particular kind of history, not, not unlike many many urban villages in Shenzhen at different points of its history. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe I could just say that what's what made Daphne unique um, and also, you know, what Daphne produces, these oil paintings for the Western market um, are in no way unique, not unique to China, not unique to Daphne, not unique to Shenzhen. Um, I found it. In many places in the world, including New Jersey and Naples, um, Italy. Um, but what does make Dauphin unique uh, and so visible was that it was made the first model cultural industry of China in 2004 and thereafter just got a lot of press and propaganda attention.
1: And um, one of the really wonderful things about the book, and this is, I think, true throughout all of the chapters, is it really takes these ideas that many readers. Probably, I mean, I certainly did come to the book taking for granted the idea of uniqueness itself, the idea of originality, the idea of individuality, the idea of copying. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really upends uh, what we think we understand when we understand these notions, and it makes the story of the locality of these notions, local emergence and complexity of them, really, really beautifully interesting um, and really, really inspiring, I think. So one of the um, notions that you are very much calling into question here is the notion of copying itself, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, based on uh, familiarity with things like New York Times articles and popular press, um, etc., Again, readers might come to this thinking, "Oh, well, these Dafun paintings—a bunch of these painters, you know—they just copy from an original. These are paintings that are just forgeries, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And you're very careful here to claim—at least at one point—you claim that these mm-hmm. are actually the very opposite of forgeries. Mm-hmm. And part of that has to do with the way that we understand a copy here. Mm-hmm. So to lay that groundwork um, for us to build on as we get into subsequent chapters can you open up for us this idea of the gao or the copy What oh. is in copy in this context and how does it shape the notion of what copying as a practice becomes for these painters
2: mm-hmm. um yes i I've, i i am um, trying to explain why um i came to I've come to argue, really, that what Daphne painters do is not copying. Um, By really, I I guess by looking at their practice. And um, I think it was uh, very surprising to me that when uh, my uh, Van Gogh teacher taught me to paint a few sunflowers, that his main instruction um, was to not look at the gao. So, um, and rather that if I kept looking at the gao, meaning the model from which I was, I thought I was copying, um... I would not produce a good painting. And this was um, the instruction he gave me repeatedly and that his own teacher would come in every day to give me as well. Um, And that was sort of my first clue, that there was something fundamentally, not just theoretically different, but that in practice um, that was very, very different from what um, our expectations were. So um, I use the concept of the gao because it has a particular kind of... um, Circulation within the practices of Dauphin painters. And a gao, as we know in Chinese, really just means a draft um, or something from which um, you are looking at or working from. Um, We use it in. in literature just to mean a a manuscript copy. Um, But I think it's interesting how the function of the Gao is a lot like the function of a manuscript copy in early copyright law. Um, And so part of my interest was to uh, draw our focus on the circulation of existing sources rather than on the question of that there is an existing source at all. Um, So, you know, in... in, uh, Theoretical terms, it's hard to say that any work of art is not derived from some source or another. Um, But uh, what does it mean when a practice is contingent upon the circulation and use of very particular sources, that being um, photographic reproductions of um, existing paintings? So, that is in essence what staff and painters i think most strictly speaking we can say they are doing they are painting after an existing painting from which they have only a very very uh, small and often fuzzy reproduction. Now, what they do with these reproductions, you know, varies with different kinds of painters. um, But that is, I think, the the fairest way we can, and just the clearest way we can put what they are doing without the cultural and historical and value judgments of words like originality and copying and creativity. Does
1: that help a bit? Oh, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, so this is this idea that Daphne paintings are not or are, well, are simply forgeries of Western masterpieces is really one of several assumptions that the book is going to upend and undermine. So um in, in addition to this, again, this idea that paintings are just forgeries of Western masterpieces, the book is going to also undermine the idea that Dauphin is a village, right? This sort of asks us mm-hmm. to think anew about what that means. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, Dafun is a single factory, um, you're mm-hmm. undermining that. And also the idea that production in Dafun is something we can think of as a mass assembly line. And this mm-hmm. actually brings us into the first chapter. So chapter one offers some historical grounding to place what happened in Dafun within a larger context. Mm-hmm. Now you take us into um, this sort of story of the transfer of trade painting networks from Hong Kong, as you put it here, to South China in the 1980s. You also take us into the emergence of the narrative of industrialization mm-hmm. as a way to describe what's happening in Dafan village. Mm-hmm. Part of this then is going to involve another rhetorical move that emerges in concert with these ideas, and that's the move to describe what's happening in Dafan in terms of the rhetoric of assembly line painting. Now, this becomes really important um, for us to understand not just what's happening in Daphne, but also the contributions that your book is making to, more broadly, how we understand and talk about labor, Mm -hmm. labor practices. So could you bring us into what you um, think is the most important parts of this first chapter by maybe getting us started in talking about um, what is so pervasive about this assembly line rhetoric mm-hmm. and how do the practices that you observed and took part in DAFUN undermine that assembly line rhetoric?
2: I think the best story um to encapsulate this problem is um what the the Daphne boss who claimed to have made, I think it's five hundred thousand paintings in fifty two days, uh for, for Walmart, Walmart. Right for Um, I think it's very interesting to take his story, which I question in various aspects, but even if we take his story, um, I think it's very interesting to see how um, the practice um, undoes our expectations of what industrialization does to what we imagine to be individual creativity. So he claims that the reason um, he had to invent the assembly line in order to meet this massive order from Walmart um, was that if normally what would happen in Duffin and, and orders of this size were at the time not um, so, you know, it was not the first time, not so unprecedented um, but what you would normally do and what you would do now um, is that you would just get enough painters to each do a certain number of it. So if you had to do a 1,000 paintings, um, you would get a 100 painters to each do 10, right? Um, or, you know, whatever number that you, could, you would do um, in time. Um, what he said was that he needed to create an assembly line because if every painter painted their paintings their own way, then every painting would be different, right? Right? So this, um, th- this is a sort of acknowledgement that the work is really quite individualistic. Um, at least in its results, um, and so he surmised, he guessed, um, he has no proof really that the um, that Walmart or you know the order of his paintings would not accept this. And so, in order to create the impression of a single hand of a single individual behind all, say, you know, thousand paintings, he needed to create an assembly line in which everybody took one piece or one step so that all of the results would look similar. Now, this is the very opposite of what we think or what we had imagined industrialization is supposed to do, which is to separate the tasks so as to de-individualize each worker. Um, And so I find this story, or at least the rationale that he gives for a somewhat apocryphal tale, um, is is quite fascinating um, because it tells us that it's the market demand for individuality that, in fact, in this case, causes a division of labor and not the other way around.
1: Great, thank you. And so the chapter really um, positions this idea of assembly line painting as what you call a cultural imaginary, and it opens up um, a kind of contextualizing of the different kinds of labor practices that go into this imaginary, including. Um, Those of individual painters, including practices of um, the emergent figure of an artist boss who becomes really, really important here. Um, And you also take us into the very different kinds of, I mean, there's some consistent uh, features, but different kinds of workshops and, quote, factories that constitute the landscape of artistic production in Dauphin. Now, one of the things that's happening in this chapter that I, I think actually happens in every chapter that's really, really great, um, at least for me, uh, from the perspective of one reader, is that you're introducing um, in each of these chapters at least one work that by a contemporary artist that is playing with, calling into question, or otherwise epitomizing some of the phenomena that you are bringing us into in that chapter. And here, this is work by Beijing conceptual artist Liu Ding. Mm -hmm. Now, this artist organized a performance piece called Products that became quite controversial, and it became controversial in ways that, again, really speak to um, the kinds of phenomena and practices that you're problematizing here. So could you maybe um, talk about that project for us? What's important for us to understand about Products. this performance piece.
2: Okay, so um, on the one hand, um, this, the Walmart story is meant to tell us that um, Dafin Village does not exist in a kind of pre-industrial state and that we shouldn't try to understand contemporary China um, as a sort of um, Backwards, sort of trying to catch up with uh, a history of European industrialization. Um, my use of um, contemporary artists and conceptual artists who engage with Dauphin um, is also meant similarly to um, challenge the idea that Dauphin is completely outside the norms of um, the art world, the, the, the highest art world that we um, know it today, which is in the form of the global uh, artist um, who uh, participates in an international art market and institutional system? So, um, Liu Ding is a wonderful um, example, I think, of how um, ignoring this sort of simultaneity of Daphne with um, high art um, and with contemporary art um, skews um, the politics of controversies, shall we say. Um, so, in Liu Ding's case, um, he He went to Dauphin Village and um, said to have brought to uh, Guangzhou, to the Guangzhou Triennial, uh, a team of assembly line workers um, from a factory who would uh, demonstrate their sort of um, regular standard product uh, production method. Um, And uh, what I found um, was that... um, it wasn't really a factory, it was a network of artists, and the painters who participated had never actually worked together before. Um, they were they were friends who wanted to go on a, an outing, actually. They thought of it as a, a public art kind of exchange, cultural exchange, artist exchange kind of event. Um, and... Um, Neither had any one of them before worked on an assembly line of such a um, number of painters, such a large number of painters. And um, none of them had actually worked together on that particular painting before. Okay. Nevertheless, they were able to kind of half demonstrate um, quite poorly, actually, what the process could have been imagined to have been by the artist and I think this is interesting insofar as it it locates Lilding within uh, uh, the rhetoric of the assembly line factory which I'm arguing now is used more by bosses um, like him, in a sense, like the artist Lil Ding, in order to uh, forward a certain kind of managerial power um, and power over scale that they might have. Now, um, what, did, what does it mean to sort of elide the artist's version of the story with um, actual practice? It means that um, uh, critics of Liu Ding's work focused on how much he paid the painters um, and they and he defended himself by saying that he paid paid them a standard wage and uh, one thing that I point out is that it's actually impossible to to really it, it's we don't know what um, what would be a fair and standard wage in this situation um, and that the disparities between uh, what the painters perceive they should get and what the art world is willing and able to give them is actually what we should focus on, um, not the question of uh, labor exploitation in a factory, which doesn't exist. Um, so I think this is why I'm trying to point out that sort of careful attention to the actual practices and exchange is so important in understanding uh, what we now call socially engaged art. Artists have been going all around the world doing projects with small communities, um, and I think we need to take um, their challenge seriously and to really look at those communities that they're engaging with in order to understand their work.
1: Now, the next chapter also explores aspects of practice of these Mm -hmm. painters, by taking us into another really fascinating work. And this is a work um, that was created in 2009 by an Amsterdam-based video artist. Now, this Mm -hmm. artist was exploring, among other things, the notion of skill um, and the relationship between skill and the practicing of skill and the identity of and the formation of and the performance of identity of these D- Dafan artists. So could you bring us briefly into that project and maybe use it to talk a little bit about how you understand
2: the importance of skill mm-hmm. coming up in this context? Mm-hmm. Um, so the artist, Sasha Paul, um, early on in my dissertation work, I had published a short essay about Dafan in, in an art magazine. And he read it and came to me and said that he would like to come to Dauphin to make a a video project, which would be reenactments of Hollywood movies about artists, and that specifically, he wanted, for example, to find a Van Gogh painter to act as Kirk Douglas in Lust for Life, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and I asked him, but he told he, you know, he then told me that he did not speak Chinese um, and that he had no budget, and so I thought this would be essentially impossible to do um but he came and i watched a few i participated in a few of his trial runs um and then um i and then what happened was that he came back and spent another i think nine months in Dauphin and produced what i think is an incredibly impressive video um which Uh, you have to see for yourself to see what it kind of reveals. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand how someone working in such a different way than I was, in other words, without, um, language skills and without a sort of, um, you know, he didn't even speak English, uh, as his first language and neither did his translator um, who resubtitled this film speak uh, or write English as a first language, Um, nor Dutch, which is what he's, uh, or sorry, German, which is um, what what his first language is. Anyway, there were all of these sort of um, moments for mistranslation to occur in this process, obviously. Um, And What he managed to do was nevertheless so revealing of um, what's happening in Dauphin. And we ended up showing the video again in in Dauphin at the Museum of Art. And what was so amazing was we we invited many of the painters to come back to see the film after it was done. And... um, it was just wonderful that everybody laughed at the same time. And we had at the time a screening with, um, you know, well-known Chinese artists, um, well-known foreign artists, and often painters. And everybody found the same things uh, comical. And so I wondered... Um, part of that chapter is about talking about what it is that painterly skill and artistic kind of social skill, um, means. And, and to show that in essence, uh, Sasha Pola and, um, the Daphne painters he worked on, worked with, um, actually understood very well, um, the same spectrum of problems when it comes to both acquiring skill and performing it as an artist. Um,
1: This issue of translation and mistranslation Mm -hmm. actually comes up really interestingly in another of the chapters. So I'm just going to kind of bring Mm -hmm. us there. Um, In Chapter 5, you look at another really, really fascinating set of relationships among um, several different uh, pieces that are um, pieces by photojournalists, um, documentary photographers, and conceptual artists. And in one of these cases, translation also winds up playing a really interesting role in terms of how the final pieces look um, and how they're understood by the people involved. So let's kind of work our way there. Now, this is a chapter that takes on, um, and really, it becomes a kind of mystery story in this fabulous way. This is one of my favorite chapters. I'll just mm-hmm. chapter five. Okay. Um, so it takes us into the relationships between several works. I think the best way to do this is for me to kind of hit the ball back to you mm-hmm. and ask you to talk about some of these works. So you start us off with this piece by Michael Wolf called China Copy Painters. So what do we need to know about the 2006 Michael Wolf piece, China Copy Painters, in order to understand what's going to come next?
2: Um, uh, Michael Wolf is a, a, a very well known photojournalist and also documentary photographer based in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, his work tends to uh, involve very, very large series of sort of the same um, composition. Um, and the, his photographs are absolutely striking. And uh, and and extremely evocative, and uh, he did a series on Daphne Village uh, called China Copy Artists, which he later um, called real fake art. And he later did um, later iterations of the project as I was working on it. So um, in essence, I, I think that um, some of my work is sort of engaging in a dialogue with him as he's sort of transitioning from a photojournalist to a documentary photographer, and I would like to argue a conceptual artist, though he does not um, make that claim. Um, so um, what... I think what um, is interesting to me is that the compositions of his photographs of Dauphin Village again run counter to what I found to have taken place in the making of them, in the practice of making of them. Um, And so the photographs look as though um, there are many, many painters in Dauphin who uh, copy um, the most... Erudite, the most um, hippest, the trendiest of uh, current contemporary art concerns. Um, so in 2006, um, Neil Roach. Um So he, uh, the photographs look as though there are all of these painters producing Neil Roch on um you name it, at the time, just really super cool, too cool to be true. Um, And what I found was that uh, the photographs are largely staged, um, and they are, um, not only are they staged, uh, the paintings in them were chosen by uh, the photographer, Michael Wolf, and that he commissioned each one of them, and that every one of them was, I mean, not everyone, but the vast majority, were painted by um, a single painter who comes to eventually figure quite centrally in my research and in the work of many other conceptual artists uh, who came to Dauphin. So... Um, my interest in in, in uh, Michael Wolf's work, again, like all the other conceptual artists, is in showing how what the artist um, is sort of forwarding as a sort of image of Daphne is quite different from um, the practice there, and what that difference actually tells us, um, in this case, about um, the function, the difference between documentary and conceptual art, uh, which have always been intertwined. And yet, I'm arguing here, it maintains an important institutional and ethical difference.
1: Now, this um, dafan painter, Yin Shenzhi, went mm-hmm. up being really, really important mm-hmm. in many ways in this chapter. One of the ways that we meet him is through your explanation of and your introduction of another 2007 work mm-hmm. called China Painters. And this is a context where, um, as I was alluding to before, you're showing us the ways that um, something as simple as an interpreter or a translator. Right, mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. there ostensibly to mediate communication among um, this artist, um, Jankowski, on the mm-hmm. one hand, and mm-hmm. um, the Dafun painter artist, um, Yin Zhur, on the other mm-hmm. hand, is actually through the interpreter's choice of how to translate and what um, this interpreter thinks is going to communicate or not, is actually mm-hmm. materially impacting um, the final product in mm-hmm. really, really interesting ways. Okay, so there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on there, and I'm just going to um, point listeners to this chapter, Chapter 5, because there's so much interesting detail here that's just really surprising and shocking, and I've got exclamation points all over the margins here. <laughs> but what winds up happening um, toward the end of this chapter is um, you take us into your own re-photographing mm-hmm. of Yin Shun-Zhi, and mm-hmm. this becomes a kind of not just um, an analysis on your part, but also a kind of performance piece mm-hmm. um, uh, on your part. So could you talk a little bit about that aspect of what's mm-hmm. going on and your own um, engagement in this as a kind of performance piece in this chapter?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, I um, though I suggest that it could be interpreted as a performance piece, um, I want very much to emphasize that I don't regard um, what, my photographs of, uh, of Shenzhen as a performance piece at all, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there are really I, I, if I should I should clarify my reasons for that. Um, so what basically happened was that I was carrying around photographs of Michael Wolfe's, um, a small kind of reproductions of his photographs that I had downloaded from his website. Um, I was carrying them around because I wanted to um, research it. I wanted to research the work. I wanted to find the painters in it to interview them. I wanted to find the buildings and the places where they have been photographed and the, and the and the and the galleries um, that seem to be showing these paintings and it was extremely unexpected um, that day I went to meet Yin Jinzhe who actually uh, I know as Da Zi, which is how he's known um, in Da Fan. um so I uh happened to go to meet Dawes that day for a completely other reason, which was to interview him about Christian Jankowski's uh, 2007 project. Um, but as soon as I met him, I recognized him from a photograph by Michael Wolff. And it's incredibly serendipitous, or rather maybe it shows how small uh, social networks among artists are. Um, he he was the one who said to me, but I painted all of these paintings in these photographs. And so this is how I came to understand very coincident and serendipitously uh, another version of Michael Wall's photographs. So, um, uh, that was the, um, I didn't believe him at first, of course. Um, and so I interviewed him. And then he said, you know, I'll show you where all of these buildings were taken. And he was he he took all of my photographs. And we went on a tour of the village, uh, where he showed me the site of every photograph. And I don't really know how it happened that he then mimicked the composition of Michael Wolf's um, photographs and said, you know, take a picture of me here, or perhaps I just, I don't even remember whose first idea it was, um, but I ended up taking photographs of him at each site, holding my reproduction of Wolf's photographs, um, and I thought he was proving to me that um, he knew all the sites and had uh, painted all the paintings in them, but later on, and you know, now I've known Tahu for for years, and we've talked about this uh, this, and many other projects for, for over the years, and both of our opinions and feelings have changed um, about them. But um, at the time, uh, soon after, I realized that perhaps what he was doing was demonstrating to me that I could also come and make the same paintings with him and the same photographs, and this would bring him a lot of business, because Michael Wolf was his best uh, client um, and so I think in in this encounter and in many others I, I want to emphasize how um, the boundary between uh, conceptual art and um, commercial practice are, are can be closely intertwined and uh, uh, perhaps just a matter of tone Um uh, but, but those are sort of differences that I want to kind of attend to with each individual piece.
1: Great. I mean, it is really interesting how because of the framing um, of your photographs, in the context of the plates, right? So they're juxtaposed with um, Wolf's original photographs in a way that very much um, just strictly for the reader or observer through that technology of visual juxtaposition invites us to see your photographs in a way that is like the photographs of Wolf and, and thus in a way that's akin to a kind of artistic performance or conceptual art, even if it wasn't intended that way, right? Or even if it's not definitively that way. And this is interesting because it raises another issue um, that I think is really beautifully taken up in another one of the chapters or a set of issues, both the issue of authorship and kind of positioning and selfhood as a figure, as a creative figure, and also um, the issue of your own um, integration into and your own participant observation In the practices that you're chronicling for us, and this is chapter four. Mm -hmm. Um, So chapter four looks at the relationship, among other things, between craft and an idea of craft. And also at the same time, modernist authorship and signature practices. And really, signature is very much a practice as well as an object um, in the context of this chapter. So, mm-hmm. the chapter takes us into a Van Gogh specialty workshop and also into the retail and wholesale trade in Van Gogh paintings. And it was based at least in part on three months, as you tell us in the chapter, mm-hmm. of participant observation in the workshop of a particular artist. So, yeah. can you maybe take us into That aspect of what's going on here. What were for you, um, as of this moment right now, some of the most notable or important elements of your own experience as a painter in this workshop that shaped the way
2: you were thinking about the issues that you're treating in this part of the book? Um, So I should emphasize that um, the sort of ethnographic method of this book was sort of invented on the fly. It I, I just did what seemed to make sense at the time. Um, but what, um, what, what ultimately happened was that I ended up, um, in my first sort of few months of the field work, um, adopting different roles, um, in, in, in Daphne village. Um, so, First, essentially, as a tourist, um, and then as a consumer. And one thing that I began doing, uh, was to, um, uh, how would you say, put, down orders uh, for paintings for friends Um, and I needed to do that because every painter I met told me that they could paint anything in two weeks and so I realized that the only way I could really engage with the question of what they could or could not paint uh, was to order paintings from them and so I began uh, trading in paintings and then uh, you know and then I began translating for artists and I began interviewing artists and I began translating for other conceptual artists who were coming. Um, And uh, then I was serving as sort of a translator for um, uh, sort of, non-artists who were coming to buy paintings. And um, once I became conscious of the fact that I was actually um, adopting different roles that exist in Dauphin and that they sort of coincided with a lot of what people do. You sort of, as a migrant worker, you come to Dauphin and you do what you can. Um, And you you learn different aspects of the trade and you try to kind of move fluidly between um, potential kind of avenues of work. Um, I realized that if I was going to uh, Um, do this as a researcher, I needed to to be a little bit more comprehensive in all the roles I was adopting. And so I figured that I would learn to, uh, I would apprentice myself as a a migrant worker would. Um, And so when a migrant worker uh, arrives at DAFEN, they usually uh, start out at the working um, in uh, the trade specialty, which is the easiest to produce, and the cheapest. So the easiest paintings and the cheapest paintings in Dauphin are Van Gogh paintings. So I thought I would start there, and I had hoped that I would move all the way up, but <laughs> obviously ran out of time. So I, um, I, uh, Asked a Van Gogh painter, whom I already knew at the time and had and had spent quite a few um, hours and uh, over several months interviewing, that I, I asked him to be my teacher. Um, and uh, he understood this to be a form of sort of research, uh, a sort of play, but a sort of work. And... Um, he allowed me to come in every two days, and um, and ostensibly apprentice. Although our relationship was. Um always sort of, in a way, negotiated between my research and my um, work. So, for example, um, he explained to me that uh, to be a proper Van Gogh painter, one must learn five uh, major Van Gogh works, um, self portrait starry nights, sunflowers, irises, and um, uh, the bar scene, the night cafe. And uh, I only did two before I asked him if I could paint some other things because I wanted to see how he engaged with um, Van, Gog- uh, uh, Van Gogh that he had never seen or painted, for example. So there were various uh, ways in which we uh, kind of played with my role there um, and from which I, I mean, I learned a great deal just from sitting there and doing it um, and hanging out with him and his family and his subletters and his teachers. Um, but I also learned a lot from his engagement with me being there and uh, all the various friends from throughout the village who knew i was a, actually a researcher and uh, and not a migrant worker and they would come and joke about it and and watch me paint and laugh at you know, laugh at what I was doing. Um, and many people came to call me the, uh, ironically, the uh, migrant worker from MIT, uh, yes. which is where I was doing my dissertation. So I think I learned as much from, from, you know, a sort of classic, I guess, ethnographic practice as I did from their awareness of my, um, my sort of attempt to perform as an ethnographer. <laughs>
1: And this chapter um, does really interesting work for listeners that are particularly engaged with these issues in asking us to think about um, and sort of rethink notions that are germane to the kinds of practices that you're describing um, coming from your own experience in the workshop. And these are practices of signing, um, the idea of a signature, Mm -hmm. and the larger conventions of authorship, um, ideas about authorship, practices of authorship, assumptions about authorship that come out of. Um, this context. And so there's a really interesting um, discussion of that in this chapter that I'll just um, sort of signal Mm -hmm. for listeners rather than um, having the time to talk about it in detail. We could talk about that for another hour or two, probably. (laughs) So you mentioned, though, um, and this is why I want to move on just a little bit, you mentioned a term that winds up becoming really, really important throughout the book, but that's really taken on centrally in chapter three. And this is the term mm-hmm. migrant worker. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is a really important part of the work that the book is doing. But here in this context, you take us into the ways that the party state right, the Chinese party state is using particular subject figures in propaganda tools. And here it's a television shows in particular, in order to construct an image of creativity, that's very specific to migrant workers, and very specific to female migrant workers in particular. So this is a chapter that really takes on the ways that the figure of a woman, the figure of a migrant worker, and the figure of creativity are imbricated um, in, I think, really interesting ways. So you look here at two propaganda. Products um, One of them is a five-part TV documentary about three women artists and bosses that was produced and aired on CCTV One. This is Story of the Oil Painting Village. And another is a 20-episode TV melodrama set in a fictionalized version of Dafun and produced by um, Guangdong Provincial TV Network. And this was a melodrama called Painted Fate. Um, so could you, for us, um, just, you know, briefly choose one of these TV shows, whichever one you're particularly interested in at this moment in time right now, and maybe talk a little bit about the way that this idea of creativity comes out um, of the particular propagandistic elements of the TV program.
2: Um, So these um, two... um, TV, uh, series, one, a documentary, one, a, m- a melodrama, um, are, they're not the only, um, stuff and propaganda products that, uh, are focused on women. Um, but I did want to focus on them because they, um, constructed such a striking and different figure of the female migrant worker than we have seen, um, in, um, uh, in, in the Pearl River Delta, um, where, uh, there has been a great deal of, uh, study of female migrant workers. Um, and I think we could think about how, uh, the term, Dagong gong um, has kind of transitioned um, over the course of 30 years in China from sort of being country, little country sisters to, we could say, working girls um, and what that kind of shift kind of implies and, and, and engenders. Um, but um, Da Gong Mei is never used um, in, as in, in either one of these um uh, Daphne, sort of stories, propaganda stories of Daphne. Um, and rather the focus is on true love and on uh, 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 women who become either artists or bosses um, and wives at the same time. So um, th- this chapter really um, Really made me see how central and how neglected the role and the figure of the lao ba yang, the meaning the boss lady, is in both uh, in Chinese, um, contemporary experience and in a uh, migrant worker experience. And I think that's a, itself a subject deserving of its own study. Um, but I think what, um, the the document the the CCTV documentary on uh, the story of um Dafan uh, begins with uh, the story of a handicapped uh, migrant worker. Um, she only has, I think, one functional hand with only two fingers. Um, yeah. It begins with how she uh, went from being a migrant worker and with the support of the state became a creative artist. Uh, and the second story talks about a retired um Uh, a retired um, illustrator who comes to Duffin and realizes her dream of becoming a creative artist Uh, again with the uh, sponsorship of the state. And uh, however, the third story um, is the story of a woman who becomes a very good boss lady uh, without the implied sponsorship of the state? Um, and so I think it's it's very interesting here how um, this kind of documentary uh, negotiates uh, both um, the the sort of market forces, the ideological forces, um, and the various conditions of these women uh, as kind of representing different uh, types of women of different ages, um, but but in the end. Ends on a sort of entrepreneurial woman um, whose only motivation is love. Um, so that I think what I was trying to argue is that this particular configuration is is quite new and tells us something about the tensions that uh, those making propaganda are actually trying to negotiate.
1: Great, thank you so much. Now, as we come to um, the end of the book, we come to a conclusion that takes us into the Dafen Pavilion that was mounted um, in the 2010 Shanghai World Exposition. And you talk both about that expo and you also talk about your own experience helping to mount a concurrent exhibition at the Dafan Museum of Art. Now, there are lots of things that are interesting that come up in this conclusion, but one of the most interesting kind of products that emerges, at least um, for one reader, is this product called the Daphne Lisa, right? A kind of a play Mm -hmm. on the Mona Lisa. Now, you take us into this context where 500 Daphne painters were collectively producing this work that um, they didn't realize, right, ostensibly um, what they were producing at the time. Mm -hmm. But we have, again, in the close of the book, this image that, um, kind of reflects the image we began with, right? The, a group mm-hmm. of people sitting and making copies. Um, this is where we started. This is also kind of where we end. Mm-hmm. So in order to kind of bring out uh, the, what you take to be the most important elements of this for listeners, can you talk a little bit about um, this product, um, this project, and what you take to be some of the most important aspects of this project for embodying the points that you're making um, here at the end of the book?
2: Um so um the, the book emphasizes both um well I think to put it short, I want to draw out how closely aligned in politics and in rhetorics the uh, conceptual artists are with the Chinese uh, propaganda um, producers. Um, and what I mean by that is that with the Daf Lisa um I think we have an extremely similar kind of set of a very similar framework, Um, namely that those sort of working with the state uh, loosely, you know, with with sort of rough idea of what state ideology or what, what might be expected um, come to Dauphin and create some kind of project uh, which both showcases them as people they need to appear in it, right? And which emphasizes how they are merely assembly line copyists or forgers um, who can maybe together other in, in positive senses produce a collective work um, uh, and in, in negative uh, senses not. Um, but this is a sort of a similar move um, by The curators of the Shanghai World Expo Pavilion Um, and I in fact believe that they were inspired by a um, artist uh, a Los Angeles based artist who had been making or has continues to make uh, large paintings in Daphne made up out of smaller pixels of a large image and have been doing that since actually the beginning of my research Um, and um, so they knew of this uh, artist's work through our proposals to um, uh, uh, mount an exhibition at the Daphne Museum of Art. And I so I do think they were inspired um, by this artist's um, proposal. Um, and uh, so I, I just want to point out that uh, in, ultimately my argument is that what they showcase is not so different, uh, about Dauphin, is not so different than what conceptual artists showcase. And once again, what is amazing is how little it has to do with actual practice in Dauphin and how little um of the Agency of uh, Dauphin Painters, they actually um, uh, show, even as their uh, stated political concern is to um, help them to realize their dreams as uh, artists. Right. And so um, one of the things that's happening with
1: these artists is that, you know uh, if I'm recalling correctly, they're collected together in a park, and each one of these 500 painters is given an image that they're then charged with um, copying, right? Or But copying, this is in quotation marks, and I'm invoking this term in this much broader, more problematizing sense that we've been talking about for an hour. On the flip side of their painting that, again, they're sort of making with reference to this reference piece or this gal that they've been given, if we can call it a gal, on the flip side um, they're signing it, which becomes important because of the, the work that previous chapters of the book have done to um, direct our attention to the importance of signature as a practice um, in various mm-hmm. ways. And they're also indicating, uh, indicating their secret dreams, as you put mm-hmm. it in the back. And often, as you tell us at the end of this chapter, those secret dreams um, involve becoming recognized artists. And so mm-hmm. this is, I think, a useful thing to keep in mind also in the context of your own um, naming practices in the book that, again, uh, you state at the very beginning, but here we come back to at the very end, you mentioned to us very explicitly that almost all the painters and artists asked to be publicly named in your book. And so Mm -hmm. this, um, this relationship, I think, between the kind of Naming of these artists as individuals, the way that they are signing themselves, the way that you are signing them, becomes a really, really interesting way to think about signing and naming and selfhood and the construction of selfhood, um, not just for the Dauphin artists, but also for ourselves.
2: And I well, I just want to emphasize the the real question there is why do the dreams have to be secret? And why do they have to be revealed? And what is it that is actually going on in that process of asking others to make visible? What is not not does not need to be a secret? I mean, that artists want to be recognized as artists? Why should that be continually surprising?
1: Mm -hmm. And I think this notion, uh, I mean, this fits along with what you're doing elsewhere in the book is even the notion of secret, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that's um, bound up with ideas of selfhood and individuality and, and um, what's is, is also very usefully problematized here. So Winnie, there's, uh, we're now at the end of our hour and there's a million billion things um, in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, is there anything really important that we didn't touch on?
2: No, I think you've covered it admirably,
1: <laughs> And hopefully um, listeners will find a copy of the book themselves, because one thing we absolutely can't do justice to in the medium of, of an oral podcast is the real beauty of and the centrality of the images in the book, which are very much part of the argument um, and very, very um, central for understanding and experiencing um, what you are bringing us into. Thank you. So, Wendy, now that the book is out, um, you've you've already um, talked a little bit about part of um, what the next project might be, and it may or may not right, involve going back to these handbags, which I hope you'll go back (laughs) to at some point. But um, would you tell us a little bit about what's next for you and what's currently inspiring you? Uh,
2: yes, um, I am currently uh, co-edit, co-editing a volume with uh, Marianne O'Donnell, who I mentioned earlier, an ethnographer of Shenzhen for over, I think now, 20 years coming on, um, and uh, Jonathan Bach, uh, who uh, heads global studies at Parsons the New School, um, and we are just finishing up a uh, uh, uh co-edited volume with a lot of other collaborators um, on the history of Shenzhen. Um, It's a sort of 30-year history as told by uh, people from different disciplines, um, all of whom have worked on the ground at specific sites. So um, though Daphne is to me so fascinating, uh, another fascinating thing about it is the next village over um, has a completely different story that is the complete opposite of everything that Daphne is. Um, And I, and um, uh, sort of the process of um, doing this research in Dafen, alongside others who were doing field work in Shenzhen at the time sort of made us realize um, how uh, there is no sort of just comprehensive and explainable history of Shenzhen um, in China studies or in uh, global urban studies. And we wanted to just put together uh, a very accessible um, text that will just introduce uh, people to uh, the complexities of the city and uh, what it represents in uh in China for contemporary China, but also, uh, what it represents for the use of cities as a site of, um, policy of history, um, and as research. Um, so that's, uh, that project, um, is entitled learning from Shenzhen. And I hope that, um, everyone will look for it because we're, uh, working very hard to sort of just show how interesting Shenzhen is, um, as a site of research. Um, and this, uh, the other project I'm working on, of course, um, is this uh, longer and a historical study of, um, oil painting done in the Pearl River Delta, namely Guangzhou, uh, since about 1730s, but as early as 1610. Um, and I think I can just simply say that, um, if we recognize that oil painting has been bought by, uh, Western consumers, um, Oil paintings made in China have been bought by uh, Western consumers since the 18th century and again in the present day. um, We can think of uh, the Western consumption of Chinese ink painting, which fills our museums today, um, as only an interlude in a much longer uh, uh, and and a very rich history of uh, Sino-Western cultural and artistic engagement.
1: Great. Well, best of luck with both of those books, and I'll eagerly um, look forward to reading both of them. And thanks very much, Monique, for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.